Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you are a, a speaking God. Um, were it not for that, we would not know you, uh, such as our separation from you by our sin. But you have spoken into your world uh, to us through uh, the prophets and apostles and most fully in your Son. Um, but Father, thank you for your written word that um, uh, we can study now, we can have read. And we know that uh, its truths are revealed by your Spirit and so we do pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit, you would soften our hearts uh, to hear uh, what you'd have for us today and that you'd be glorified by our lives transformed uh, for your, um, yeah, through your word, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Duncan. Thanks, Steve. Great to see you all this morning. Um, isn't it good to gather, to gather together, sing God's praises, hear from his word? Uh, we're going to hear um, uh, the Bible read. I'm going to read uh, to us uh, from John chapter 13. Um, it'll be slightly different to what's on your outline. I'm going to read a little bit extra. Hopefully I've managed to get it right on the screen though. I'm going to read verse 1 of chapter 13 and then skip down to verse 12 and read from there. So it should be up on the screen. If it's not, just ignore that. It should be. So um, let's hear from God's word together, friends. From John chapter, one, uh, John chapter 13, starting at verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And we'll jump over down to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And then picking up at verse 18 in our passage today. I am not referring to all of you. I know those whom I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage, this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. 
Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. This is God's word to us today. Well, I wonder if you know what these names all have in common. Probably you pick up the theme. Guy Fawkes. I don't know who Guy Fawkes is. There's a few people. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. You know your modern history. Maybe they ring a bell. Peter Pettigrew. There's, oh, my daughter's not here. She'd know who that is. It's from, a, it's, uh, from Harry Potter. Uh, Lando Calrissian. Edmund Pevensey. Marcus Brutus. Um, what binds them all together is they're some of the most famous traitors in history and in literature. Um, Brutus it was one of the most dramatic ones. If you know your ancient history, it was kind of immortalised by Shakespeare in his play about it. It tells the story of Julius Caesar's assassination um, in the ancient Roman Senate. Caesar is attacked by this group of senators. He doesn't see it coming. He starts resisting at first, fighting them off. Uh, until he sees Brutus among them. Marcus Brutus was Caesar's friend and his protege. And in his play, at least, Shakespeare has Caesar look at Brutus and say those immortal words that he's, as he's dying, A tu, Brute, or it's Latin for you too, Brutus, you too, as if he can't quite believe it. And he is his friend who's become his assassin and he gives up and... That's the end of Julius. Um, we're kind of drawn to these... Oh, there's, a, there's a picture up there of that, so you can work that up. There, there we go. Not the most uh, nice of scenes. It's pretty brutal, but we're, we're kind of drawn to these betrayal stories, right? Um, partly because they're, so, they're just so shocking. They involve this level of cover-up and deception over a long period of time. Um, uh, well, today, friends, we're looking at really the greatest betrayal. Uh, everything we know about Caesar was he wasn't actually the nicest guy. You probably wouldn't invite him around for a, a relaxed barbecue or something like that. Um, he relentlessly strove for more and more power until he, the people um, around him, the, the people in the Senate, worried that he was going to undermine the Republic of Rome and set himself up as its absolute ruler. Um, so he's this kind of power-hungry, he wants to be an autocrat, and that kind of led to his being betrayed. Uh, if, you know, if you've been with us at all, or if you know anything about Jesus, you'll know uh, that it's, he's utterly different to that. We read last week, he is the foot-washing Lord. Um, he's the one who shows 
his power, his, the, he, the mighty arm of the Lord, right? God in all his power and majesty put into action. He's the one who shows God's power through giving himself up, giving up his privilege, his position, in, in order to wash his people clean. Well, it's a fairly well-known story that we're um, looking at today. It flows on from the foot-washing episode that we looked at last week. And that's why I read part of the ending of that as we looked into this one. Um, this humble, self-giving love, as we read it last week, the, him, Jesus kneeling down and washing the dirt away from his disciples' feet, this humble, self-giving love is not just the way that Jesus relates to his people, it's the way that he, his followers are to relate to each other. He calls them to share in that. Um, verse 15, I have set you an example that you, sh- you should do as I have done for you. But then he goes on in verse 18. I am not referring to all of you. He says, you'll be blessed if you do these things. He's talking to, but then he says, I'm not referring to all of you. And it's no surprise for us who Jesus is talking about. Um, we were already told at the start of chapter 13, we read it last week, we're told that the devil was prompting Judas to betray Jesus. It's no surprise for us. What is surprising, um, what can be surprising, is not that kind of with hindsight we know what's coming, but in the middle of what's happening, Jesus knows what's coming. Jesus knows. He's not thrown by it. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's coming. He's not shocked like Caesar was. You saw Caesar's face on the screen, so this absolute shock. He's not shocked like that. But, and this is the great mystery of this passage. He's not shocked by what's happening. He's not thrown by it. But he also doesn't try to stop it. Um, You can bet anything that if Caesar knew what was going to happen to him, uh, he would do anything he could to try and stop it. Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And the great mystery of this passage is that he doesn't try to stop it. Verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those uh, those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. See what he's saying? None of this takes Jesus by surprise. He knows, he, he knows those who are his own, uh, those he's chosen. What's more, um, see how he goes on to say, all of this fits into God's bigger purposes and plans. Jesus turns to the Old Testament, to this Psalm of David. Uh, he quotes from Psalm 41 there. Um, David, if you know David, was Israel's greatest king. Uh, but he was also someone who experienced massive betrayal in his lifetime. And he wrote this um, and as part of his psalm, Psalm 41, verse 9, David writes, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. And Jesus says what's about to happen to him is going to fulfill that, what David wrote, all those years ago, hundreds, thousands of years ago, uh, what's about to happen to Jesus is going to fulfill that. Uh, David, in the betrayal he experienced, was, was like a picture in himself. It was like a model of what was going to happen to Jesus. Here, Jesus is saying, 
in himself is Israel's true and greater king, experiencing the same kind of rejection and pain, uh, but at a much more profound and at the climactic moment in God's great plan of salvation. And you notice as, you re- as we read on, uh, the reason Jesus says this to his disciples, he kind of tells them what's going to happen. The reason he says it, it's, it's like he's trying to prepare them. Uh, really over the next few chapters, that's what we're going to see, Jesus preparing his disciples for what's about to hit. They're about to go through this confusing, dark, terrifying time as Jesus is executed brutally, this one that, you know, the person that they'd put their hopes on um, is brutally executed. But Jesus wants them to know that uh, they are right, they were, they were right to believe in him. Uh, he wants them to know that so that they can look back, they'll remember this moment. Verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Uh, In the aftermath of his crucifixion, Jesus wants his followers to remember that he knew it all in advance. See see what Jesus is saying here. There's more going on here than Caesar and Brutus or any other betrayal. This is not just a story of tragic betrayal. There's more going on. And after the fact, once they look back in the light of Jesus' own resurrection, that knowledge would fill them with a bold faith that would set the world on fire. Um, A confidence that Jesus really is who he says he is. I am who I am. And that should ring bells for us too if we've read John's Gospel, knowing the way that he uses this little phrase, I am, or I am who I am, to connect to Jesus, to Yahweh himself, the God of Israel. God himself come into his world as its servant king. And as Jesus sends them out into the world to proclaim this good news, you know, in verse 20, anyone who accepts the one I send accepts me. They're going to be spurred on by this incredible truth that when people hear their words, these, these, Jesus is looking after his death and resurrection, thinking about his disciples and saying, when, people, when you go out, when I send you out and people listen to you, Uh, the incredible truth that they will really be accepting me, Jesus says. And in accepting me, Jesus says they are actually accepting God the Father. This incredible thing that Jesus wants to prepare them for and spur them on in. Um, He has this, this surprising sovereignty over it all. But just because Jesus knew this was all in God's plan... It doesn't mean it was easy for him, if you keep reading. It doesn't mean he kind of, you know, sometimes we think, uh, we can find ourselves having images of Jesus. It's kind of like he floats along the ground and doesn't, isn't unaffected by any troubles in the world. That's not the Jesus of the Bible, fully God and fully human. He doesn't sail through this unfeelingly, and that's why you get in verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. It's a really kind of strong word that gets used there. He's really upset. He's troubled in his spirit. He testifies. He kind of declares, very truly, I tell you, and here he says it for kind of just most obviously for the disciples to understand. Very truly, I tell you, 
one of you is going to betray me. You know, can you imagine yourself sitting there? This goes down like a lead balloon. <laughs> Everyone's speechless, right? None of them have any idea what Jesus is talking about, who he's talking about, and you can, you know, if, if we were there, maybe you'd start to think, you start to get your kind of suspicions running, maybe it's that guy. Uh, maybe if you're a little kind of uh, uncertain, you might be thinking, what, am I going to do something? You know, there's all this confusion going on at this point. Um, it's helpful to remember as we kind of read, keep going in the story, though, that Jesus, they're, they're sitting down for um, this meal. They're all sitting down together. Uh, and it's probably not what you have in your mind when you think of the Last Supper. Um, there's a really famous painting that you'll probably think of when you think of the Last Supper, which is Leonardo da Vinci's, if you remember that. I don't have it up there, but it's just, uh, they're all sitting kind of in this long line. It's probably most certainly not like that. Um, it was not like that painting. They're all, uh, they, they would have been something more like this, this kind of U-shaped table with Jesus as the host sitting on one side of it. Um, and then we get introduced, if you keep reading, if you, uh, as we go and keep that image up there for a little while, but we get introduced in verse 23 to this strange figure called the disciple who Jesus loved sitting next to Jesus. Um, now, what's going on there? It's a, it's a bit of a strange thing. It's the first time he's introduced in John's Gospel, but he'll, we'll talk about him a, you know, uh, a few more times. Um, is this... Uh, well, uh, essentially, um, there's fairly common agreement that that's the, uh, John, the Apostle John who's writing this Gospel. He refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. But what, there's more going on there because you kind of think... Well, uh, is this uh, John just having tickets on himself? You know, is, he, is he talking himself up? Is he setting himself apart from everyone else in the room? Jesus loves him more than the others. Um, I think a better way to understand this is actually the opposite of that. John deliberately doesn't name himself. He doesn't name himself. Um, and I think it's because he, it's so that Jesus will get the glory as people read through this. He takes this title as the disciple that Jesus loved. And actually there's something really profound going on there. It's not this kind of competitive thing where he's saying the disciple Jesus loved more than anyone else. It's John filling us in with this profound sense of his own identity as someone who has been deeply loved by Jesus. Um, someone who Jesus has loved to the end. Remember at the start of chapter 13, that's what frames this whole thing. He himself is someone who has experienced Jesus' love. The reality of what's going on has come home to him personally. And as he writes this, He's so conscious of it. He doesn't want to kind of insert himself into the story in some way that will draw it. He, he gives himself this title as the one who's, who himself knows Jesus' love, the object of Jesus' love. And, but it, um, we'll, we'll keep reading. And Simon Peter breaks the silence. If it's kind of true to form for Simon Peter in verse 24. Uh, he motions to John, probably over the other side of the the U-shape, but he motions to John, this beloved disciple. Um, and so if, we, if you kind of skim through that 
next bit of the story. John leans back against Jesus and asks him who it is. He's sitting next to Jesus. Jesus answers in a voice that's so quiet no one else hears it in verse 26. It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And so the story plays out. He dips the bread and he gives it to Judas. Verse 27. Um, he, he gives it to Jesus, Jesus and then we read verse 27. This really sobering and shocking verse, isn't it? As soon as G- Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Uh, all sorts of images probably come to your mind at this point. What, what comes to your mind when you think of Satan entering into someone? I kind of think, you know, red, eyes go red, head starts spinning around, green vomit spewing everywhere or something, like, depending on what movies you've watched. Or, um, that's obviously not what's happening here, though, right? It's obviously not what's happening here uh, because no one knows it's happened. <laughs> uh, no, one, no one knows what's going on. Uh, everyone is confused. The other people who are in the room have no idea that it's Judas but what is going on here how do you understand this Satan entering into Judas well um, just a few chapters prior to this in John 8 Jesus has already talked about Satan um, this uh, and he, he talks about Satan the, this um, spiritual being in opposition to God and all his plans he, he calls him a liar and the father of lies. He says, lying is like Satan's na- uh, native language. Um, lying is what he does best. And that, all the way through John's Gospel, is really put in contrast to John's deep concern for the truth. The truth about Jesus, about who he is, what he came to do. Uh, and it may be, it seems to me here, that uh, Satan has been feeding lies to Judas, suggesting them to his mind. That's kind of what we read at the start of the chapter. And at this point, as Jesus holds out this bread to Judas, and as Judas looks him in the eye and takes it, at this point, it all comes to a head. And those lies that he has been playing with and uh, become for him a point of no return. It's just a really sobering reminder, isn't it, of the spiritual dimension, of the spiritual kind of warfare, that's another way the Bible talks about it, that's going on for people's hearts and minds. Um. We know this wasn't a sudden turn for Judas. It's not as if Judas is kind of uh, um, a fully devoted follower of Jesus right up until this point and suddenly there's this dramatic shift and he suddenly betrays him. It's not a sudden turn. We know that because just last, in, in chapter 12, uh, we find out that Judas has actually been stealing from Jesus for a long time. He's been taking money for himself. Uh, and no one else has known it. He's the treasurer of the group, so he's had this position of privilege and authority. Um, but all the time he's been sort of hiving off a bit of money for himself. But at this moment, those lies that Satan had kind of dripped into Judas, they all come to a head. He took, takes them, he embraces them, 
instead of the one who was who who is the truth, the truth incarnate. Uh, he rejects the truth. He believes the lie. He rejects the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do, who he came to be, and in taking the bread, his mind is made up and the deceiver has won. So it seems. Um, And Jesus knows it. Jesus knows it. And so as you keep reading, you find Jesus, he, he turns... And he, he speaks up. He knows this has happened to Judas. And so he says to his disciples, stop him. He's the one. He's the one who's going to kill me. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. That's what I would say. He looks at Judas. And he says that, so this time everyone can hear. He says it loud enough. He says to Judas, what you are about to do, do it quickly. He knows his hour has come. He wants it to be over with. But he also wants his disciples, I think, to hear this as just another bit of evidence that they can look back on. Um, that this was all under his sovereign hand. They don't, they don't get it at the moment, that kind of next part of the story, in those next verses, they think they're confused. They think he's asking Judas to go and buy something or maybe go give some money to the poor. But, but I think Jesus says this for everyone to hear so that afterwards they would have looked back and known that Jesus was over all of this. They would have had their faith just really kindled by these words of Jesus. But not Judas. Uh, we read, as soon as he takes the bread, as the lies of the evil one take this kind of full root in him and bear fruit, as soon as he takes it, he leaves. And he leaves into the night. Notice that in verse 30, it was night. It's a striking little detail, isn't it, that John adds in. Literally night outside. But of course, for John, who loves these images all the way through, um, there's much more going on. Judas leaves not just into a physical night, but into a spiritual one. He turns his back on the light of the world and he goes out into spiritual darkness. He goes out to betray the one who has just washed his feet, the one who has all this time continued to show him his love, even as he knew what was coming. And so this most tragic act of betrayal ever is kind of set in motion at this point. The story pauses a little uh, as Jesus now turns to the disciples who are left and the next few chapters we'll see what he says to them, how he prepares them for what's coming. Um, But everything's set in motion now for the rest of the gospel to play out and for Jesus to go to the cross. What are we to make of this? Um, Last week's um, passage was just so encouraging, wasn't it? Uh, Jesus, this foot-washing Lord, who washes us clean. Uh, the, the, The passage we're looking at this week 
it takes a bit of a different turn, right? A, a bit of a darker turn. And on one level, I think uh, this passage is a really strong warning for us, isn't it? It's a warning about the deceptiveness of sin and of Satan um, and where following sin and Satan leads. One of, really one of my great griefs, actually, is watching people I know take a similar journey to Judas. Obviously, it's not the same. He, Judas has this kind of unique um, role in the story of the gospel, but um, to have people who have tasted something of the sweetness of the gospel, to, who have seen something of Jesus' lights, uh, even people who have been committed and active members of his people, and yet walk away from his lights and walk into darkness. Happens in all sorts of ways. Um, usually, actually, it's over time as kind of uh, people can disconnect from hearing God's word in the community of his people. And as you less and less come under God's word, you're never un not under someone's word. Um, and so there's all these other words <laughs> that may well turn out to be the devil's lies that lead you away from the light of God's grace in Jesus. Usually that, in, at least in my kind of experiences, it happens over time, but it's not always the case. What makes this betrayal so shocking is that no one sees it coming. Uh, Judas is with Jesus for years. And that kind of sudden, unexpected turning away from him. Uh, that can happen as well. Um, that can happen today. Um, but I think, at least from my observations again, what, there's always a story leading up to it. There's always a story that has led up to it, hidden from view. Um, things that have been happening, thoughts that have been going through your head, sins that you have played with um, that become... Or from little things, big things grow. And it may be, friends, that this is you today. Um, it may be that you kind of see yourself there. I want to encourage you that there is no shame in doubts. Um, doubts are actually just a normal part of the Christian life. <laughs> they're normal, uh, they're kind of neutral, everyone has them. Just don't let the devil get a foothold by keeping them to yourself, not sharing them with a trusted friend who can help you think them through. I also want to encourage you today, if you, this is you, that well, just like we saw last week, there is no sin that Jesus' blood cannot wash clean. Judas started with small st sins, stealing here and there. He let them fester, and it seems that that was like the way in for Satan to uh, lead him away with his lies. But Judas didn't bring them to Jesus, did he? Um, in repentance and faith. 
Friends, you don't need to end up the same road. And the reason that you can not go where Judas went, the reason why you can completely trust Jesus, why you can bring all of your burden, all of your doubt, all of your sin to him, is because uh, this passage is not just a warning. It also holds out the brightest of hopes for us. It holds out the hope of the sovereign love of Jesus. The sovereign love of Jesus. Um, If there's one thing that really stands out from this account in John's Gospel, it's that everything happening on this night that was so chaotic and out of control was actually not outside of God's plan and his purpose and his power. Um, The disciples are confused, but Jesus isn't. Everything that's happening here was him loving his people to the end, to the extreme limit that would lead him to the cross. Even this dark and tragic and evil event, even when Satan seemed to have triumphed, God was on his throne and was working his purposes out in Jesus. And it would lead to his death, but it was a death that, in this incredible way, the moment of Satan's great triumph over Jesus becomes the moment of his defeat, becomes the moment of Jesus' great triumph as he cries out, it is finished. He cries that out so that you could have your sin washed away. So that you could put yourself where John put himself. So that you could be that disciple that Jesus has loved. And the result of all of this, Jesus expects in, it's printed on your outline there, but what he says in verse 19, the result of all of this is that having looked back after those events of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus says, I'm telling you now before this happens, so that when it does happens, happen, you will believe. You will believe that I am who I am. That's what Jesus expects this to result in, what he's saying here. Friends, That's what Jesus holds out to you today, either for the first time to come to him and have your sin washed away, or again like those disciples to recognize the incredible sovereign love of Jesus that is not defeated by any darkness in this world, (laughs) that is not defeated by any betrayal, to recognize and see that and to put your trust in him so that you going out boldly sharing his good news might lead people to put their faith in him and in trusting him to know God as their father. And let's pray. Can we pray together? Father, it's such a sobering passage of your word today. Um, We pray that you might keep us from 
underestimating the pull that sin can have in our lives. Uh, keep us from playing with fire. Help us to come to you in repentance and faith always. And help us to do that not fearfully, uh, but in incredible joy, knowing that you are the sovereign Lord of love, um, who through your death and resurrection have washed all our sin away and have brought us close to yourself. Lord, work this in us by your spirit, we pray, and we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.